I love you guys so much. <laughs> you are the greatest people on planet Earth. I uh, wrote out something I wanted to say, and every time I tried writing, I ended up crying. I said, if I can't write it without crying, I'm not going to be able to say it without crying. But uh, I just want to say thank you for your love for us. Um, we are so honored to be here to celebrate these days. Um, I'm, uh, I'm sorry I haven't loved him better. I'm sorry I haven't served you better. But you have loved us beyond compare. And um, we, we just let us say thank you. Just let us say thank you. Father, as we look at the life of David today, we are so appreciative that you took time to map out this great man's life for us. You're taking us on a journey, not just to learn things about David, but to learn things about us. You're taking us on a journey that we might inherit everything you've ordained to be part of our lives. You have taken us on a journey that we might be the best servants of the Lord and friends to each other that we can possibly be. So help us today as we talk about this lesson David learned, a lesson about the presence of God. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We have spent introductory time talking about Saul's demise and Samuel going to the house of Jesse to find a new king. We're introduced to him, that first lesson about the call, the purposes of God. We see David, and when we're introduced to him, he's the youngest of eight brothers shepherding out in the field not unloved necessarily, but so disregarded uh, as, the, as the youngest child that when it came time for the feast with the prophet Samuel, it didn't seem to occur to anyone to bring David in from the field and send out some other em employees to take care of the sheep. But David was faithful. He was a shepherd that had killed lion and bear. He was a shepherd that uh, calmed the hearts of the lambs as he would sing songs about uh, nature and about the kingdom of God. And as he was brought in, we saw him be anointed by Samuel. And the key to everything we're going to learn about David is in that phrase where when Eliab was not chosen, none of the other brothers were chosen, God said to Samuel, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. And we know David to be a man after God's own heart. Now, that's a phrase, especially in King James, it's a man after God's own heart. It's, it, it's a little bulky in this day and age. But basically what it meant is that he was a man that his whole pursuit was to find ways to please God. That's what he was after more than anything. He began his ministry career in the fields as a shepherd, just doing what shepherds do. That's right. And as he did what shepherds do, he got a promotion and he ended up singing, uh, providing late night radio or the equivalency thereof to a troubled king whose conscience was defiled, whose life was defiled. In fact, an evil spirit was tormenting him. And the only thing that seemed to bring relief was when that boy from the hills that no doubt people had heard him sing as they passed by the fields of Jesse, he came in and probably never even saw King Saul during this time, but he sang those songs and it brought relief to that troubled tormented, demonized king. With the passing of time when David brought provisions to his brothers in the valley of Elah, 
He heard the boisterous ranting and raving of that giant nine and a half feet tall named of Goliath. And he was defying the armies of God. He was defying God himself. And David took this personally. Now the challenge was a, was a challenge to be answered by Saul. As the leader of Israel, it was his responsibility to lead uh, a counterattack against Goliath. And Saul was a head and shoulders higher than all the people, uh, all the men of Israel. But Goliath was about a chest higher and more than all of the children of Israel. And Saul probably grew up never looking at anybody taller than him. And now all of a sudden he sees Goliath who is coming from a family of giants that has been a warrior from his youth. And all of a sudden Saul himself who's led Israel into battles is not interested in taking on this giant. Well, David does. And Saul tries to do a kingly thing. He says, well, here, take my armor, take my weapon. And David said, no, I've never proven these. These don't fit me. And we learned on that Sunday that whenever you serve the Lord, the most important thing is not to become somebody else, even somebody that's a, a special person to you, but you have your own anointing. You have your own giftings. You have your own graces. And one of the first lessons David learned, he says, I, I, I know you are the mightiest warrior among us, king, but I can't wear what's brought you victory. It doesn't fit me. <laughs> so David goes, we didn't talk about it long. I think with Goliath, we might have spent 15 minutes. But he killed Goliath. And he still had a relatively low-keyed place, but he was eventually promoted into the army of Israel and his rank grew. And everything that David set his hand to, he succeeded so much so that if you tuned into Radio Jerusalem in those days, you would have heard a song that went something like this. Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And the people weren't diminishing Saul. They weren't dishonoring Saul. They were trying to honor David by saying, boy, if we want to honor David, we need to compare him to Saul. He's the mightiest man in the land. But Saul got so angry and he became jealous. He tried to kill David on numerous occasions. First of all, on several occasions with the spear, he tried to kill David himself. Then he sent David to the battlefield hoping that he would die. But every time David went to battle, um, he ended up winning and becoming more and more popular. He even said, well, I'll give you my daughter if you can bring in the bride, uh, uh, bride price for me. Bring in the dowry. He said, bring in a hundred foreskins of enemy soldiers. Now that's kind of crude. We don't think about that in our culture today. But to do that, you'd have to be up close and personal. You couldn't do that directed, uh, directing a battle. And David, David, uh, you know, sometimes pure hearts don't see a trap being set for them. David said, I'm not worthy to be the king's son-in-law. He said, so a hundred foreskins is not enough. I will bring you 200. And Saul said, yeah, he'll never survive that. And lo and behold, one hot afternoon, David, bloody and sweaty, walked into the king's presence, threw down a, either a canvas bag or a box full of the king knew exactly what it was full of. And he said he survived this as well. It got worse and worse. The king gets so angry that he sends um, armed men to his own daughter's bedroom to trap her husband David. But she heard of the plan and told David to escape. And the king is furious. And she says, well, he was going to kill me if I didn't tell him about the plan. And it got worse and worse and worse. Now, what happened after that is, 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 is tragic, but we need to understand this lesson today is what caused David to understand I'm going into the wilderness. Now it wasn't a theological, 
clarity to David, perhaps like it is to us, that God sends every one of his people into the wilderness. And remember, uh, this will probably be the last time I say this, uh, unless I remember it again, but the, the wilderness is not punishment. Now you can end up being punished in the wilderness, but the wilderness is our training ground. Jesus went into the wilderness. Israel could not get from Egypt to the promised land without going through the wilderness. The key to the wilderness is getting in the wilderness, learning what you need to learn, and then get out. Israel was designed, as far as we can tell, to be there. Scholars have said probably about 12 weeks was the scheduled time of Israel in the wilderness. And during these 12 weeks, they would have 10 tests. But as you know, they failed all 10 tests. And about 12 weeks, if scholars have it pretty close, turned into 40 years and it was punishment. Now God is so good, he cares for us even in our punishment. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and he, he passed with flying colors, but even Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. So we're going to see today David's understanding, I'm about to go into the wilderness and I'm going to stay there until God's timing is perfect and God has put in my heart the lessons that I need to grasp in order to be king. Now this is what happens according to the scripture. Uh, 1 Samuel 19, when David had fled and made his escape, now this is after he fled from his own bedroom, from his own wife. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Now the relationship between Samuel and Saul had already be bro been broken. Uh, the passage of scripture tells us that uh, Saul would never confront Samuel again. Now Saul would see Samuel, but he wasn't, he wasn't trying to find Samuel. He's trying to kill David. He went to Samuel at, at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. Now Naoth was a place, kind of we would call it a suburb of Ramah. Ramah was where Samuel lived. That's where his parents were from. And um, as far as we can tell, Eli raised Samuel, but in his adulthood, Samuel left and went to the hometown where his family was. And he had a school of prophets there. So uh, David's at Naoth at Ramah, so he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with St Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also began prophesying. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they prophesied. Finally, verse 22, he left uh, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern at Seku and he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said, Saul's attitude is if you want somebody killed, you got to do it yourself. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the spirit of God came up even on him. Now this wasn't something new. Years earlier, it had happened to him as he was out looking for donkeys. He didn't know that there was about to be a divine encounter with the spirit of the living God. He had not been named king yet, but God was showing him what his life was to be like. And the spirit of God came upon Saul as he encountered prophets coming down the road and they were prophesying. And all of a sudden, Saul, the eldest son, looking for the donkeys, begins to prophesy in the name of the Lord. And, he said, and it says this, and Saul became a different man. That was a couple of decades earlier. Now God's allowing it to happen again. I think to remind him of where he had been and what he had fallen from. He walked along prophesying till he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. 
He lay naked all that day and all that night. We'll talk about what naked means in just a moment. This is why people say, is Saul also among the prophets? And that it became a proverb. It's like when, when you wanted to say, you know, something amazing had happened, the people of Israel would say, yes, and Saul's among the prophets. I mean, it was, it was an amazing statement. Now, the principal characters of this story are David, Saul, Michael, Samuel, and Jonathan. And we could also include the prophets of Naoth. These were, these were men, uh, in the Chitty Revised Standard Version, it's called the Ramoth School of Leadership. Okay? <laughs> the story that we're going to talk about in its entirety is chapter 19, 20, and 21. The last part of chapter 19. Last week we ended with the first part of chapter 19. We don't have time to read these three chapters, but that's where you can find this story. Here's the central truth. One of the most difficult things in your spiritual journey is to be able to hold steady in the presence of God instead of running to fleshly options. Hold steady in the presence of God instead of running to fleshly options. Now let's think some things over. Let's talk for a moment about David and Saul. They, they are, um, David is doing his best to serve Saul. He will call him for years. He will refer to him as the Lord's anointed. David will have at least two opportunities to take Saul's life himself, not to mention other things that could have very easily been arranged. Um, it says earlier that from that day forward, Saul became the enemy of David until the end of his life. The scripture never says that David became Saul's enemy. So you remember we said last week, if there are going to be enemies in your life, that's where we came to last week. Everybody has friends, foes, and allies. And you've got to know how to treat all three of those. David always referred to Saul as the Lord's anointed, but, but Saul made David his enemy and he viewed him that way all the days of his life. He would have moments when his own son, Jonathan, would say, Dad, what are you doing? What are you thinking? This man is innocent. He's done nothing to you. And Saul would have a moment of saying, yeah, you're right. I don't know what I was thinking. Tell him everything is okay. And it was okay till the next time Saul came under pressure and the demon lifted his head again. David and Jonathan were close uh, friends. And to me, Jonathan is the real victim of this story so far, even more than David. Because Jonathan had legitimate or logical claim to the throne, even though the, the tradition had not been established of a son succeeding the father. It was the natural thing to do. That's what the nations all around them did. But Jonathan said to David, we know that God's hand is upon you, David, and we know that you will be king. And when you are king, I will be seated there beside you, not demanding my inheritance, but following you, serving you any way that I can. Phenomenal man, Jonathan. Now, let's go back to that idea of the wilderness. As Jesus was led into the wilderness, so was David. Jesus, with a perfect understanding of Father's ways, was led gently. When you read the account, Jesus was baptized at the Jordan. The Spirit of God came upon him. And, and the whole rigmarole to get him into the wilderness covers one sentence. And Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. A sentence. It's three chapters to get David into the wilderness. David is like most of us. He had to be forced into the place of special learning by unpleasant circumstances. Now let's talk about what David did before he said, I'm out of here. I'm going to the wilderness. Number one, he went to Ramah. He went to Ramah as uh, you, you can, can pronounce it. And here we see David in God's presence. Now, David had gone to Michael first. That was the logical thing to do. A man goes to his wife. A wife goes to her husband. That's the natural place where you go. But he realized that that was not safe 
his wife could not prevent her father from doing what he had set his mind to do it. But it was a logical step to take. Then when he realizes I need, I need something more than just what the four walls of my home can provide, he ended up making one of the best decisions of his life. He goes to where he knows Samuel is. The wisdom and experience of Samuel grounded him in the center of God's presence at Ramah. He was sheltered in Samuel's school of the prophets. And let me tell you what happened. This is David, whether he understood it or not or realized it or not, he went to the prophet Samuel because this is what Samuel represented. Samuel represented the presence of God. When you're hurting, when you're confused, when the king hates you, the wisest thing you can do is go to the prophet who brings you into the presence of God. Presence of God. And it says that Saul found out where David was and he sent a group of men. You know what this sounds like? This sounds like what happened to Elijah generations later when Elijah is being sought by the house of Omri to be arrested and executed, Elijah's just sitting up on a hillside and a captain with 50 men comes and says, Elijah, the king wants you. Come, man of God. And Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and devour you and all of your soldiers. And So what did the king do again? Same thing as Saul. Platoon B, go. Man of God, come down. And where was Elijah? Sitting on the same rock, having the same devotion. If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and kill you and all of your men. King says, Three times. Same thing that Saul did. Maybe, maybe he said this is Saul set this precedent when he was in the Oval Office. And so the third man comes and he says, Time out. <laughs> and he made an appeal. To Elijah and Elijah, as he was listening to this appeal, now he was on a roll. He sent a hundred and two men to hell with their clothes on. You know, the Lord says, "This is a man you can trust. Go with him; you'll be safe." You know what? What Elijah teaches us is even when our lives are in danger, there's never a safer place than the will of God. Well. And when it says that they prophesied, that doesn't mean they didn't just start saying, yea, thus saith the Lord, three months from now there'll be an earthquake in California and the stock market will drop 40 points. And I believe there's prophecy like that. Or thus saith the Lord, God wants you to be happy and blessed and fulfilled all the days of your life, thus saith Jehovah. It wasn't that kind of generic um, prophesying. It was Prophesying was often futuristic. But prophesying the majority of the time was making a declaration of the will of God and proclaiming God's intention, not necessarily predicting the future. So here are these men. There he is. Let's take him to the king. And all of a sudden they open their mouth and they begin to say things like, praise be to God who has delivered the land into the hands of his people Israel. David shall be their king. And they shall walk before God as no nation before them. Praise be to God and honor be to the David of Bethlehem who has been anointed king over all of Israel. And every time they open their mouth, prophetic blessings come. You say, I just don't know if that happened. That happened in David Wilkerson's church when they were getting uh, Times Square Church, getting prepared for... Um, their greatest days, there was a, a man who considered himself a prophet. He showed up in their service. He had words from the Lord that was going to spell the gloom and doom of the church. 
And David Wilkerson said that he asked for permission to speak. And David Wilkerson knew he was poisoned, knew he was toxic. But the Lord said, let him speak and I'll be glorified. And he had prepared to say, this church is going down. And he said, I have a word from the Lord for this church. I, I mean, I have a word from the Lord for this church. He said, this church will be blessed. He said that they saw his notes. This church is cursed. This church will be blessed and no false prophet will be able to speak against it. And he's doing everything in his power to speak against that church. Loved ones, I'm telling you, the presence of God is where you want to stay because even though Balak paid Balaam in the book of Numbers to prophesy against Israel, every time he opened his mouth, he just kept blessing. He meant to curse, but he kept blessing. He changed location saying, let me get to a holier spot. But every time he opened his mouth, <coughs> and that's what happened. Word got back to Saul. He says, oh, I'm going I'm to send a meaner commander. <laughs> Group two goes. And he's come to arrest David. And the Spirit of God settles on him. And he says, where is David? Glory, might, dominion, and majesty belongs to Jehovah our God. Might and dominion belongs to our God and to his servant David. Blessing shall flow unending upon Jesse's son. His seed shall ever rule over Israel. And though his descend and through his descendant, all of the world will be, will be blessed. Hosanna to God in the highest. Peace and goodwill toward David the king. <laughs> Now you got two piles of soldiers just laying around. Looked like Charles Curran had walked through the place. <laughs> so here comes group number three. And he sees the other soldiers on the ground and they're, they're, they're going, no. <laughs> but the third commander and all of his men open their mouth to threaten David and what comes out is something like all glory, might, and dominion be to God forever and ever. His kingdom shall be established in his promise to his servant David and of David's kingdom there will be no end. So you got three piles of guys that show up at school of leadership. Their swords have been dropped. Their helmets are on the ground. Their horses are outside drinking water. Every time they try to get up, they just go right back down. Every time they open their mouth, they start prophesying again. And Saul says, I'll take care of this. Then he comes and he says to himself, my men may not be strong enough to carry out this order, but I am. He sees David. He points his javelin at him. And says, praise be to God who is just in all his dealings. He sets up one and sets down another. He rejects those whose ways are arrogant, but he delights in those whose hearts are pure toward him. Success is fleeting and strength decays, but the one who pleases God shall endure forever. Those that are his enemies will come against him one way and will flee before him seven ways. No weapon formed against David shall prosper. Every need, David, in your life will be met. The Lord will be your shepherd and a table will be set before you even in the presence of your enemies. David, surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life and you will dwell in God's house forever. And it says he lay naked all day. What that meant was that when Saul got there, he took off both his armor and he laid down his weapons. It's the same word that was used during that period of time when a man went into a place unarmed. And what God was telling David is that no authority can come against you and succeed. God was telling him that no army can come against you and su succeed. You got to understand, David recognizes these people. They've come to kill me. And one by one, they're just piling up like cordwood. 
and it happens all day long. Four direct attacks could not dislodge them, uh, David and Samuel, from their place of peace and security. The students are prophesying. Samuel's leading the prophesying. David was probably prophesying and singing songs. Four many armies have come to destroy him, but God's showing him that nothing can touch you unless I let it touch you. And if the story ended here, we'd go home as better men and women. But I got to tell you, that's not the end of the story. For some inexplicable reason, David thought it best to change locations. Now hear me, loved ones. If the enemy cannot reach you in God's presence, he will entice you to believe that another similar place is just as safe and maybe even preferred over God's presence place. He'll send you to Bible college, and I'm using this as an example because I was there. He'll move mountains to get you there. He'll, he'll feed you from a king's table. He'll do all kinds of things to confirm that you're in the right place. And when a trouble comes or a voice is raised or a sword is brandished, all of a sudden you'll figure out, I've got to get back home. Or I've got to get back to another place. Or I've got to find another church. Or I've got to find another ministry. The enemy, if he cannot defeat you at the place where God is meeting you, You'll find yourself making, if, if I may say it because I've done it, the stupidest decision of your life to move out of God's presence and it makes no sense. There's no rhyme nor reason to leave Ramoth. <coughs> so we begin to wander in circles. We remember a day of past blessings we talk about the good old days, but what's happened is we've walked away from Ramah. We've left the manifold presence of God because of fear, because of unforgiveness, because of bitterness. And what we don't understand is that the devil could not take us down with a frontal assault. David could have stayed in Ramah till Saul lost all of his army to the ministry. But in the midst of this divine protection, David says, I got to get out of here. It might have been a reminder to Saul of what he had forgotten because the reason the Spirit of God, you guys still with me here? I mean, you might as well relax. You got lunch here. <laughs> it's a reminder of what God was teaching him 10 chapters earlier. When he was about to be anointed king of Israel, he was a timid man. He was a humble man. Saul, or Samuel put it this way, when you were little in your own sight and God let the Spirit of God come upon him to show him that it's not by might and it's not by power, but it's by my Spirit. Samuel, you're about to hear some news. Excuse me, Saul, you're about to hear some news that will shatter your entire world you are going to be a king. You're going to fight enemies that you never thought you would ever face. You're just a farmer from uh, the house of Kish. You are just a man that decided that I'm going to live quietly and peaceably all the days of my life. But you're a man for war. You're a man of destiny. But you won't have to fight this alone. The Spirit of the Lord will settle upon you. But he forgot it. He forgot it. And lovings, I just, I've just got to ask the question before we move on. How many times have we been in the center of God's will? We know we're in the center of God's will, but something enticed us, something tricked us, something churned up in us, and all of a sudden we make a, we make a, a, a move. It may be a physical move. It may be an attitudinal move. It may be a service move. It, you, you make all kinds of moves, and you always find a sense of, well, the Lord seems to be leading me, but at the end of the day, no matter how many times you count it, no matter no matter how many times you go through the receipts, no matter how many times you read your journal, the bottom line is you walked away from the presence of God. Well, where did I go? 
like David, you probably went to church. <laughs> he left the presence of God. Now, I'm, I'm condensing the story. There's more that happens here. But the next time we see him dealing with this wilderness idea, he is at the, at the dwelling place of the priests, a place called Nob. And that would be the equivalent of David in church. That's where the priest dwelt. That's where religious activity went on. And I'm not trying to be an allegorical preacher today, but I'm saying, you know what? People generally feel safe in church as long as they're not confronted by the presence of God. We think the protocol and the liturgy, we think the familiar songs are the presence of God. And I want to tell you, it is for somebody around you, but for you, you're settling for second best because you're running from what God had you, the place God had you. Now, David went to church and he used religious language. He spoke to the priest. The things they dealt with were still religious items. He said, basically, I am on a mission for the king. Here's this man lying in church. I'm on a mission for the king and I had to leave in a hurry and I didn't have any food. I'm wondering if you've got some food we can have. And, and Ahimelech probably says, probably thinks, the king sent you on a mission but didn't give you any food? That's odd. Well, it was, it was in a hurry and it's very secret. So he says, well, we've got some sanctified bread. We've got some holy bread. We can give you that if, if it's for the king and if it's for the king's. Yeah, that's what it is. We, we're on a mission for the king. And um, he said, if you, and by the way, do you have any weapons? We're, we're, on a, we're on a mission for the king. And Ahimelech probably says, okay, the king forgot to give you food and then he forgot to give you weapons. And David said, yeah, but it's just so secret. We didn't want to risk anybody understanding. But you've got to understand, um, by the time you've moved from the presence of God to another religious location, you're used to half-truths. You're used to lies. And we become what I call sausage Christians. Because excuses are like sausages. They're the skin of a reason stuffed with lies. Now, Ahimelech the priest was fooled. Saul found out that David had come away with Goliath's sword. <coughs> and David had come away with the, the bread of the, of the temple. He lied his way through. And he did it all using King James English. <coughs> King Saul comes and confronts Ahimelech. And Ahimelech says, David came, but he told me he was on a mission for you. And Ahimelech told him the truth. And Saul, in his rage, and you got to understand this, 85 priests are there with Ahimelech. And Saul says, kill them all. And David's allies that the army of Israel, they weren't anti-David, but they sure weren't going to cross the king. But this was a step too far. They said, we're not going to kill the priests. And then there was an Edomite named Doeg who said, I will kill them. And 85 priests bow in worship to the Lord as they are slaughtered under the supervision of King Saul. Only one escaped to tell David what was going on. And you know what David's response was? He says, this is all my fault. Every one of these priests and their families are dead because of me. David could have said, everything that happened in Nob happened because I left the presence of God. Why did not I learn to stay steady in the presence of God? Let me say this, sooner or later, churches begin to reap the fruit of what they have become. The Lord spoke to me when I was going through such a passage in my life and I was struggling of whether or not I wanted to be in the ministry. And 
one of the things the Lord told me, uh, this, this isn't very glorious, I know this, but one of the things I told the Lord, uh, let's see, eight months before I came here, as I was so, so burned out and so disillusioned, I said, Lord, I'll give it one more try. I'll give it one more try. So I, I, I said, I, I'm not giving you an ultimatum, but this is destroying me. I'll give it one more try. And God spoke some things to my heart. And this is one of the things he said. I don't know that I've ever told anybody this except in one pastor setting. He said, I'm about to move in the churches of America and churches will get the pastors they deserve. You say, what does that mean? I, didn't, I don't know at the time. But I'll tell you what I've begun to find out, what I've begun to see. Churches with a heart for God are getting shepherds that have a heart for God. And churches that are going to be political powerhouses, districts that want to be political powerhouses, organizations that want to be based on politics or the works of the flesh, they're getting exactly what they want too. So there's been a dividing in the house that's been going on for over 20 years, I think all over America. And I think that's what was happening at Nob. But the thing about it is both the guilty and the innocent suffer when those days finally arrive. Now, I was safe in the presence of God, David could say, but I thought I better put some distance between me and Saul. So he went to a religious place, lived a life of half-truths, got what he needed until he couldn't get any more, and now he had to leave again. And he went to a place called Gath. You say, Gath, I've heard of that. Yeah, we read it a while back when we described the warrior in the Valley of Elah, Goliath from Gath. Can you imagine David, the man that killed Goliath? Somehow feeling that in the providence of God, he has to settle in Goliath's hometown where his five brothers live. I mean, what, what was he thinking? What in the name of sanity was he thinking? I'm in the presence of God and everything that comes against me ends up prophesying for me. I'm told no weapon shall prosper. Samuel, an old man's just standing there taking care of me by just speaking the name of the Lord. I should have stayed in Ramah. But I wanted to go someplace else and I thought getting into the church was the next best thing but I found out if I'm not honest with God, I'm not going to be honest in church. <coughs> and loved ones, I know, I've known pastors that have gone from church to church to church and they never stay long. They never get much done. It's always the church's fault, but it's because they've never come clean with their issues before God and they are like Merle Haggard. They're fugitives out in the cold. Do you know church people can do that too? But I want to tell you, there is a day coming that, that we're barely ready for. There is a day coming to the church in America where pastors will find where they belong. There's a day coming in America where church members will find where they belong. And will throw aside that little black book of offenses and reasons we left. And, re and I'm not talking about just our church. I'm talking about all over the nation. God is putting churches back together again. God is putting families back together again. God is putting churches back together again. He's putting ministries back together again. He's putting religious organizations back together again. But I want to tell you, loved ones, one of the toughest battles we've got to fight is to learn to stay steady in the presence of God instead of running from church to church or ministry to ministry or house to house when the enemy starts attacking. What was he doing in Gath? Gath! You say, oh, but... Pastor, we read later, he's a welcome visitor in Gath. Yeah, we'll talk about that when he comes back to Gath. But he's welcomed because he's hired on as a mercenary. And they think David is fighting with them against Israel. But what he does, 
I'm ruining some of the story for you, but he leaves Gath with his men and the other Philistines leave Gath in their divisions and David goes out to attack Israel. But what he does is he attacks other pagans and takes their riches to the cities of Israel. So they think David's out killing Jews, but David's delivering the goods to the Jews, telling them, shh, just keep quiet about this. But let me tell you what happened at Gath. He doesn't belong there. He realizes I've made one bad mistake that I should have never made. So in order to correct my bad mistake, I'm going to leave Nob. And I made a worse mistake. I went to Gath. So though David was God's child as well as the appointed king, do you know what he does in Gath? He realizes, whose idea was this? As they gather around him, let me tell you what he does. He gets on the floor. He rolls around like he's crazy. He foams at the mouth. He eats dirt and he eats garbage and he speaks like a madman. You say, why did he do that? Because David realized he had one way of escaping Gath. He had one way of backing off that horrible mistake he made. And it was the culture of the Middle Eastern world at that time that if you harmed an insane person, you brought the vindictiveness of the gods upon you. I'm serious. I'm not making this up. So David, if he had not been a quick thinker, he would have died that day in Gath But they say, so this is the truth about David. He's a babbling idiot. He's insane. He's, now what have these men done bringing a madman to me? So look at King David, the mighty warrior. He's got his own spittle running down his beard. He goes over and picks up pieces of food that are rotting in the roads, mixes it maybe with a little dog dung, crams it in his mouth, And starts talking gibberish and acts like he's crazy. (coughs) And what does the king of Gath do? He says, get this man out of here. Don't hurt him. Don't put a scratch on him. Just get him away from us. We don't want the gods angry with us. We don't want any madmen here. Just get him out of town. So how do we end this story? David began in the safest place on planet earth left it for a place he thought would be better, which wasn't. And once we start making mad decisions, once we start trying to run from the presence of God, we're like Jonah. It says that every place he went, it says he went down, then he went down, then he went down. Now that's talking about geography. But can I tell you, the the more you run from God, every one of your moves are down too. David was learning that I have to look to the hills to discover where my help comes from. Now, what are the Christian life lessons? Let's wrap this up. Now, again, I know know I'm, I'm taking stories within stories. I don't want to lose you. But what I'm telling you is there comes a time once you begin to understand. Now, let's let's talk about what we've covered. Once the call of God comes to your life and you say, God wants to use me. He wants me to be a pastor, wants me to be a prophet, wants me to be a teacher, wants me to be a church administrator, whatever, whatever it is. You start on a journey that highlights your giftings and then God puts you in a place where you learn to negotiate life with friends, enemies, and allies. You're going to have them the rest of your life. And you've got to learn how to act when the king hates you. Because there will always be a king that hates you. Really? Yeah, why do you think that person at work gives you such a hard time? They're the king that hates you. You know, your neighbor may be the king that hates you. Remember a neighbor I had one time, I won't say where, but uh, he just... uh, he, he treated me real nice, except he just hated me. You know, other than that, and for, for almost three years, I just, I just, there was no reason for it. I tried to be a good neighbor, and he came over one day, and we had a meeting of church leaders at our house, and he came over and said a bunch of stupid things. I just snapped. 
I, 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 was, I said, you know, we'll, I won't call his name. We'll, we'll call him Lucas. I said, Lucas. I said, yeah, I'll take care of, uh, somebody had parked, the, their bumper was over his property line. I mean, literally, that was it. I said, I'll get somebody to move their car. But I said, you need to understand, for three years, I've, I've tried to be a good neighbor to you, and I've, I've tried to help you and your wife. And I said, I just, I, we'll move the car, but I, I just want you to understand, I'm going to have to kill you. <laughs> I, I, I've, taken all, I've taken all I can take. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to kill you. And he started all this trash talking, and I said, it doesn't matter, I'm going to have to kill you. <laughs> he said, are you serious? I said, no, I'm joking. <laughs> but barely, <laughs> barely. <laughs> See, loved ones, there's always gonna be a king that hates you. You're always gonna have friends like Jonathan. You've always gonna have allies that you don't know if you can depend on them or not till you, till you just get down to the next turn in the road. But once you begin to learn that, once you begin to learn to get a balance of life, God will do, you think you're ready at that point, but what God says now, it's time for the wilderness. And God will take you to a place to show you how much he loves you and how much he cares for you and that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. What is he doing? He's getting you ready to go into the wilderness. I'm going to take care of you in the wilderness. But we want our problems to be solved there. But we've got to go into the wilderness. So we don't like the lesson we're getting and we run to another house, religious, in the same neighborhood, but I fled the presence of God into a place that commemorates the presence of God. And then in desperation, we make a move and we don't know why or how we end up in Gath, but the good news is that God will give you a way to get out of Gath and to get back to him. But can I tell you the surprising news? It's the wilderness. You're still going to end up in the wilderness. Let me give you the three life lessons. And I know it's time for us to quit. Boy, no, it's been time for us to quit. But number one, our safest place is always in the Lord's presence. I know sometimes we think we need to move our kids to a better something or we need to move to a better job. And can I tell you that through the years for everybody that's ever moved out of town, um, um, saying it's just too good a job for me to pass up, can I tell you that almost every one of them resent the move and regret the move later? Now, now don't get me wrong, you, you, God may move you to another town for a better move. A better pay, better job. But you better be sure it's God moving you there and not you following a no-brainer. Do you know that every move I've made, I'm not saying this for me, I'm, I'm celebrating the faithfulness of the Lord. Every move I've made in ministry, every single move I've made in ministry, let me say it another way. Every move I've made in ministry, when I made the move, I went for a cut and pay. You say, you just mean you've gone down, 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 down. No, no, no. I, I, I was making this much and then I would go to another church and my pay went down. It would go up and I'd go to another church and it'd go down. Yeah. I mean, it was this. I, I've never made a move where I looked at the figure and said, this is a profitable move. But can I tell you something? God honors a heart that wants his will. You know, and now I'm here, this, this, this church, you, you treat me like a king and I, it means the world to me, but I'm not here because you treat me like a king. I'm here because God put me here and you're just the bonus. Do you understand? We, we, we've got we've to let God do the directing. 
Your safest place is always in the Lord's presence. Dan Betzer, that should be Dan Betzer. I don't know if it says better in your notes or not. My, I've got a new computer and it is, I'm telling you, it believes it knows better than I do. Dan Betzer, when his son went to a particularly tough place on the mission field, I had all my little kids sitting on the front row and I thought, boy, I don't know if I'd want my kids to go to that place. And Dan Betzer said something that was phenomenal. He said, there's no safer place in the world to have your children than the will of God. I, 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 and I remembered when he said that, I remembered when, y'all stay with me, this is important. I remembered when we had little Jeremy dedicated to the Lord, my pastor dedicated him to the Lord. And he held Jeremy and he says, this little child is dedicated to the Lord. He said, Brother Steve, he said, Ramona, you understand that the Lord has priority over this child's life. He may send him to stay with you the rest of your life, or he may send him across the ocean to another field. But wherever he goes, that's the safest place for him to be. We nodded our head. We said, yes. He dedicated Joey to the Lord a few years later, and he said essentially the same thing. He used that same analogy. There's no place better for your children to be than in the will of God. Even if it's a dangerous place, it's better to be in the will of God in a dangerous place than out of the will of God in a safe place. Do you know that my pastor had a stroke? He couldn't speak. He was just gibberish. He, just, he couldn't speak. His mind was there, but he had no control of his body. And Jack Taylor dedicated the girls, and it was just beautiful. But I wanted my pastor to dedicate my girls, and, he, and I knew he couldn't. I knew he couldn't. He couldn't. He couldn't say anything. He couldn't hold him. He couldn't do anything. But I remember calling his wife and setting this up. I went to his house. We lived a thousand miles away. We went to his house. And I said, Brother Stevenson, you dedicated my boys. And my girls have been dedicated, but I brought my girls. They were both in my arms. And uh, I said, I want you to dedicate them. And... Uh, he started crying and I asked him some questions. I have no idea what he said, but he held out his arms and I put Molly in one arm and I put newborn Becca in the other arm. And I said, will you dedicate them to the Lord? He, he said yes and smiled. And as I started to back away, he grabbed my arm and he pointed to the two girls and he did this to me. And he, he said, I said, you're telling me that even if God leads them far away, the safest place for them is to be in the will of God. Big tears. That was one of the most sacred child dedications I've ever seen in my life. He held those girls. He held them in close. He rocked them in that wheelchair and he blessed them. He prayed for us. I don't know how long he went, but he just blessed. But I've never gotten away with all four of my children. Now, I'm trying to help the Lord. I'm trying to tell them that they all need to be here. <laughs> but loved ones, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Whether it's you, your money, your future, your children, your grandchildren, there's no safer place than in the Lord's presence. The second lesson, carnality may be seen as moral sin. When we think of someone being a carnal Christian, we think of, you know, immorality, sexual sin, and what have you. But carnality is also defined as attempting to do spiritual work in the strength of the flesh. That is carnal. It's just as carnal for a man to be at a church out of the will of God as it is for a man to have an affair and cheat on his wife. It's just as carnal for spiritual leaders to rely on their gifts than it is for a spiritual leader to break his vows of marriage. It's just as carnal and it's just as wrong. <coughs> Can I tell you this about Saul? Saul was the best the flesh could offer. Galatians 5 and 8 contrast our walk, whether we're walking in the spirit 
are walking in the flesh. And I'm telling you that as we study David, we need to be sure we understand that in the days ahead, the day before us, God is exposing the works of the flesh that have been masquerading as spiritual dynamics. I'm telling you, don't be shocked. There's going to be another great exposure like there was in the, in the, in the late 80s where ministries that we thought were devout were, were shown to be less than perfect. <coughs> we're about to see the same thing again, but it's not going to be necessarily about sexual sin, but we're going to see manipulation exposed. We're going to see carnality exposed. And I want to tell you, there's going to be a lot of people put down in the body of Christ, not because of sexual sin or sin with money, but because their whole ministry has been built on manipulation. Here's the last thing. <coughs> Safest place in the Lord's presence. Carnality is more than moral sin. It's defined as attempting to do spiritual work in the strength of the flesh. And here's number three. Learn the lesson of the cloud. Every one of us has to learn the lesson of the cloud. Exodus 40 then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day. The fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. Listen, the core lesson of the cloud is this. God's people, we want His blessing, we want His presence, we want our church to be everything we want it to be. We've got to recover that art of moving only with the cloud. Stop throwing away things that have been marked by the presence of God. Stop throwing away relationships that are marked by the presence of, the God, of God. Go back to the days where he was real in your heart. Numbers eight or 10, we gave you a card. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, rise up, O Lord. May your enemies be scattered. May your foes flee before you. When, 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 the, when, the, when the cloud moved, Moses says, now, God, it's time for us to move. And whenever it came to rest, he said, return, Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. And the meaning of that was now rest over us and protect us. Moses says, you want to be led by God? You want to know the power of the Holy Spirit? Move when I tell you to move. Stay when I tell you to stay. And above all, dwell in the presence of God. Loved ones, David said, okay, I'm ready for the wilderness now. I'm ready. Wilderness is a place I don't know about. Wilderness is a place I'm not sure where I'm going to end up. But this is, I know this is how it works. When God says go here, I go here. When God says do this, I do this. Loved ones, this is the, perhaps the best one of the first, but one of the best lessons that we can learn about David. He, he learned the high price of leaving the presence of God. So we need to think, is that job change worth it? Is that change in my home worth it? Is doing things worth it? Is, is losing my time with my kids worth it? Father, this congregation has been so beautiful today. I hate to give them anything heavy and burdensome. Let's blame it on Ramona. <laughs> Father, we're about to start following David through the wilderness. But Lord, some of us aren't ready for the wilderness because we've, we've played cat and mouse. We've played chess with you instead of staying where you put us. 
or continuing to do. Maybe it's not a place, but continuing to do what you told us to do. Father, we've got to come home. We need to come home. And we need to focus our attention on resting where the ark is. Or, as we've said today, resting where the cloud is. Father, we're, we're through trying to navigate our retirement. We're through trying to navigate our own lives. God, forgive every one of us that said, well, I'm backing off. I've done my time. Father, let us see your cloud again. Let us see the cloud again in our dreams. Let us see the cloud again in worship. Let us see the cloud again in our devotion. And when that cloud begins to appear, Father, let us run to it with all of our heart. Let us run to it with all of our might. We pray in Jesus' name. We don't have room to have an altar call today. Uh, I didn't even think about that until I came in. But we're going to ask the Lord to pray the blessing of His presence over you. Now, if you're here and Jesus is not your Savior, you're not a Christian, please come see Justin. He'll be right up here afterwards. I think they're making us leave uh, a little bit early, um, me and my family. So we're, I'm, I'm about to slip out, but I'll see you over uh, at the food. Uh, I, I, I tried to make that sound more spiritual, but I, I couldn't. But loved ones, this is about getting back to the cloud. As we, everything we're going to see about David from now on is that David realized following the cloud, following the presence, following the Lord. He's learned the lesson. He's about to run into the wilderness. He's about to go to a cave called Adullam. And 600 mighty, mighty warriors with a kindred spirit along with their families are going to join him for the journey of a lifetime. I love you. Thank you for being so special to my family. We love you more than we can say. Justin, come ahead.